Hello, friends, and welcome to the Caroline Glyke Show. Caroline here. I'm your host. On this podcast, we're going to be exploring a variety of topics from adventure and activism, climate change messaging, mountaineering, skiing, relationships, and how we can use sport to change the world. Today's guest on the show is Congressman Raul Grijalva, a Democrat serving Arizona's 3rd District. You began your career in public service four decades ago as a community organizer in Tucson. And throughout your career, I really appreciate how you've always fought for underrepresented voices. In 2018, you became the chair of the House Natural Resources Committee, and I had a chance to meet you in February 2020 when I was invited to testify in support of your bill, the American Public Lands and Waters Climate Solutions Act. Testifying was this strangely scary, intense experience, but whenever I got scared, I felt really comforted by your presence. And I really feel so much better about our country knowing that there are people like you advocating for livable wages for American workers, immigration reform, and land protections to safeguard our nation's natural treasures for the next generation. So Chair Grijalva, welcome to the show. And thank you, Carolyn, for having me on the podcast. Uh, I hope everyone that is uh, is safe and healthy during these uh, past few months that have been, uh, as you said, before the show started, it's been a sea change for for in a lot of perspectives. And I I hope everyone is well. And uh, I I think one of the uh, good things about being chairman of that committee is uh, people such such as yourself that for many years didn't have a voice in that committee. So when we would have uh, discussions on climate change which we didn't have when there was a different majority, or when we would have discussions on any topic dealing with public lands, waters, and all the related topics. Uh, voices of people that were out there, like yourself, uh, being uh, active and, and promoting uh, good things, uh, never had an opportunity to come before that committee. So I, I appreciate you being there at the end of February, and it was, uh, it was, it, it was good. It, it gave us momentum, and that was great. Thank you so much. Yeah, as I was preparing to testify, which was such a huge opportunity, and I'm so grateful for that. I spent a lot of time reading the bill, and I was just so impressed by the way you incorporated environmental justice into the language of the bill. And can you speak more to the intersection of climate, environment, and racial social justice? I know that's a big question, but it's so important right now. I I, I think, Caroline, I got involved in in environmental issues by way of an EJ issue, a a water contamination here in my hometown of Tucson, Arizona, that occurred in uh, frontline communities, uh, working class, lower uh, lower middle class communities, uh, and 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 the consequences of what happened to people's health uh, was unbelievable. And but as as I worked through that issue, I the, I, I came to understand uh, that the issue of conservation, open space, habitat protection, riparian areas, all those were were connected to the quality of water and to the, the horrible experiences that these neighborhoods had gone through, of which I, live, I lived in, uh, and that there was an intersection, that there was a connection and there was commonality. And so when we were dealing with uh, our, 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 our part of the climate change uh, solution for the country, uh, the land and water, 
25% of the emissions, by the way, and the extractions that are occurring uh, are in, in this country have come, come from public lands and public waters. And so that was our jurisdiction. That's where we focused our, our attention on. And as such, we, we couldn't leave frontline communities out of it. And we couldn't leave communities of transitions that have become totally dependent on the extraction industry as their economic base. And so we incorporated both those, uh, giving um, uh, EJ communities a voice uh, and, and mandating federal agencies not only include, but uh, have, have the wherewithal to allow these, uh, these communities to have real input as to projects that affect them, their air quality, their health. And, uh, and we're seeing through this pandemic that those frontline communities have higher incidences, disproportionate incidences of bad health, uh, and they had the pre-existing condition already of bad air, bad water, and now you combine that with the virus, and that's why the instances, mortality instances and infection industry in, indices are so high in those communities. And uh, so we try to incorporate it by creating a fund with additional royalty from extraction industry plus uh, uh, leasing permits, uh, raising the cost of uh, the fees for those significantly, and as such, creating a billion-dollar fund uh, every 10 years uh, for communities to be able to use it both in transition and in the remediation and restoration that's going to be required in many of these areas. And I, I, uh, uh, we wanted to incorporate that. We also have a piece of legislation, myself and Congressman McEachin, uh, e Environmental Justice for All Act, which uh, codifies even more specifically and with more prescription uh, how we protect these communities going forward. That's so cool. It's so forward thinking. And I also loved that you incorporated the language around a just transition because in Utah, coal mining is yes. happening on our public lands. And and I've been to a lot of federal hearings. I've been to a few federal hearings about coal leasing on public lands. And I had the opportunity to meet some coal miners. And they said that they actually didn't really like their jobs working in the coal mines. And they would take a job installing solar tomorrow if they could find it. And I know that's not the norm. I mean, I don't, I don't want to speak for a whole community. I think it's important to let people speak for themselves. But can you talk a little bit more about how you incorporate the justice for and the compassion towards coal miners as well? Yeah, the, one of, uh, and, and, and my friend, uh, chairman of that subcommittee, uh, Mr. Lowenthal from California, had a very, very good uh, hearing. And we had a hearing, uh, a, a forum uh, just the other day on that transition question, that it's not only makes environmental sense, but it makes economic sense and it's a job creator. You know, when, when this pandemic, 600,000 jobs in renewable energy have been lost since, uh, since this pandemic started. It is a growing industry. Uh, the, the coal industry is dying. It's dying of its own inertia, dying because uh, people have become more conscious that the burning of fossil fuels is bad for health and bad for the climate and bad for the planet. And, and as such, uh, how do you make that transition? It can be the painful one we're seeing in coal country right now. Unemployment is high, no transition. And what we wanted to incorporate is that, that we're going to move away from this. And we're going to move to something clean. And in doing so, uh, that doesn't mean that there's uh, that you have to have this 
collateral damage in the, in the terms of people's lives. But you can train, uh, re-educate, and, and move people in a different direction. The reclamation, if you look at when I visited those areas in Appalachia, uh, that the mountaintop removal and the damage it had done uh, to, to all surrounding areas, the health uh, consequences, it's no, it's no at the urging of the coal industry. The first study that was eliminated by the Trump administration was the study of the health impacts of mountaintop removal and the, and the consequences of the toxic contamination that occurred to those communities. Uh, that was the first one that was, that was taken away. And I say that because uh, people, I, I, my sense was that people want a different direction. They want to work like anybody else. And, uh, and they have known one uh, industry. I think uh, the transition is about in, introducing new workplace opportunities that don't exist right now. If you, know, you have a, of it just in uh, Arizona alone, a $40 billion bill just to reclaim, close, mitigate, and, and restore uh, abandoned mines all over this, the, the, the Southwest. Uh, those are jobs. Those are good jobs. Those are skilled jobs. And uh, that process of both cleanup and restoration, plus the introduction of uh, en energy is going to be a transition. It's not going to happen overnight. We're not going to, there's not a magic bullet from one day to the next. But in that transition, we should be there with resources to help people make that transition and not leave them to their own to their own means of which they're uh, of which they don't have the resources to do. It seems to me you have a great way of understanding this intersectionality of activism and all the different ways that it touches us from human health to thinking of all these communities. And what advice do you have for climate activists in the outdoor community on how we can make our activism more intersectional and inclusive? Let's begin, Caroline, with the premise that we all agree that the future conservation and protection of our public spaces, be they water or land, are critical in our fight on uh, uh, in our fight to, uh, of climate change and the warming of our planet. Uh, critical, and and now the pandemic has taught us that it's critical to our public health as well. And and so, and I think for that you need a constituency, uh, a, a, a diverse, strong constituency across this country. And 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 so. There's two ways to look at it. Is, is, is this coalition building is essential for the goal that I just talked about, the conservation goal. It's also essential for, for public health and the urgencies that these frontline EJ communities feel every day. And it is a way to integrate the bigger environmental agenda, the outdoor agenda, for lack of a better way to put it, with those issues, and then they become one, uh, I think then the support in urban America, young America, America of color, becomes stronger and stronger for the environmental uh, ethics and, uh, and movement that we all share uh, as we speak. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a political necessity, to put it that way, absolutely, to build a constituency for the future generations. Uh, and and as I as I see it, it's happening. 
you see mainstream organizations now incorporating uh, EJ communities. And I think it starts from, from being inclusive. The principles of, you know, you need to speak to people directly. You can't assume that it's an academic exercise, it's a people exercise. And, and you have to understand that, that when we did the EJ bill and part of, uh, and part of the, the, the bill of the, the Public Lands and Waters Climate Solution Act, it was from the bottom up, having discussions and having discussions. And there is, there's going to be points in which you have to mediate and try to find some common ground. And, we, and, and those sometimes are struggles, but they, by direct con, 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 having those conversations, that dialogue, those listening sessions, uh, it, 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 it makes that whole uh, finding common ground so much easier. Uh, I, I wrote the greatest EJ bill you ever saw when I first got to Congress like 19 years ago, 8, 16 years ago. And I was just shocked that I didn't have any support from any organizations. Well, I hadn't talked to any of them. And this time around, we did it differently. It took two years to write the draft. Wow. It had 300 public comments. We had a summit of 400 people that showed up to D.C. from all over the country. And now it has momentum. Same thing as we're working to get more and more sponsors in the Solution Act. Having to deal with, with, with the questions that come up. Why didn't your bill go far enough, you know? Why didn't we incorporate leave it in the ground as, as the premise? Why, and, and, and so you, as we talk and go through with that, more and more organizations and individuals understand what our motivation was in trying to get a piece of legislation that is within our jurisdiction, but more importantly, we can get done. Because I think right now it, it's action and accomplishment of that and finishing that action, which is essential. Uh, the, the, the greater picture of how to deal with climate change, you know, every committee in Congress should be working on their portion of it. I know transportation, when their bill comes out, there's going to be a lot about clean energy. There's going to be a lot about public transit. There's going to be a lot about the conversion uh, to uh, to electric vehicles. There's going to be all those things that have been advocates such as yourself and and. And Powell have been promoting consistently. And so, yeah, I, I, I think that that's, that's the key, allowing people to, uh, to feel that they're part of it, invested in it, and you'd be surprised how much harder they fight for it. That's wonderful advice. Yeah, it's definitely something I've been learning a lot as well. And it's time consuming to have all those conversations. But then in the end, it creates such a better, you know, sense of, community and sense of purpose. And uh, I was curious, what inspired you to protect public lands? Great question, because I have, I have trouble answering it. I had the good fortune when I was a kid. My dad uh, came to this country as a bracero, a grass worker, uh, not to work not to work as a farm worker, but to work as a cowboy. Um, because in those times, the, the, the uh, most of the ranch uh, people that work ranches uh, were off were off to the war during World War II. And so my dad came to work a ranch, and I was born in Tucson, Arizona, but I grew up on that ranch for the first six, seven years of my life. And, you know, now, you know, at an older age, you reflect on that, and it, it was different. 
it was open. It was uh, there was certain serene quality to it. You're in the cup of the Santa Rita Mountains and the Rincon Mountains and the Tucson Mountains, and uh, and and there was a uh, for the people that worked there. I remember even from my dad and my mom, there was a certain reverence uh, to them being on the land. And, and so as I got older and I had a chance to be involved in public policy as an elected official. Well, we, we were instrumental in pushing the Pima, Pima County uh, Sonoran Desert Protection and Conservation Act. And, and the voters gave us money. They voted a bond for us to open, to buy open space and create new ordinances to, uh, to protect and start to deal with the sprawl that was eating up uh, the valley and eating up this part of the country. And, and, and so, and why? Because they were all interrelated that what I had experienced as a young kid. Uh, and, and, and I think that I grew up in the borderlands. There's a certain, I use the word reverence. There's a certain permanency to land. There's a certain permanency to those, uh, to, to water that, that, uh, generations, uh, have have experienced that and, and the fact that we were beginning to lose that uh, was uh, uh, as I got older was 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 not just a loss of uh, we're going to build homes on this on this acreage uh, which was bad enough it was just the loss of that permanency which I I think my fight is to fight to keep something permanent perpetuity that some my grandbabies can see it, and their grandbabies can see it and experience it. Uh, yeah, that's the way I see it. I, it's, it's about preserving something that, that uh, unfortunately, is always under threat. Yeah. Well, when I think, I, I loved hearing about, I loved hearing that story you just shared because when I think about where I really come alive in life, you know, I think about my experiences recreating on our public lands and. I think what it is for me is just that connection to my inner child and going back to that place where we felt free and we could roam. And, and I think you, you really nailed it because uh, it's, it's, it's making sure we can, I guess for me, like honor my inner child and make sure other people can feel that same way that I get to feel when I'm out there. So I thought that was a really beautiful way you described it. Before my dad passed and he spent most of his, he came to this country when he was 15, 16. Uh, before my dad passed and he was 74, 75, uh, he never, and he'd lived in Arizona his whole life, his whole life, and the borderlands his whole life. He'd never been to the Grand Canyon. So we took him there as a family. My kids, his grandkids, and my sisters, and uh, Mona and I, and took my mom and him to the Grand Canyon. He'd never seen it. And he stood over, looked at it for about five or 10 minutes and he goes, all he said was, I saw it, which was very moving for me because uh, you, know, you live your whole life here and you don't get to see what's one of our crown jewels that's in your backyard. Uh, it says a lot about access and it says a lot about uh, that taught me a lesson as well that I think that experience shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be proprietary. It should be everybody's. Agreed. That's a beautiful story. Yeah, I 
I have to take my dad down to Moab to see Arches National Park now. That yeah, that's been a trip on my list, and that's a good reminder. My dad's 89 this year, and so God bless. That's good. We got to get him down there. Um, when I what I feel like when I'm on a public lands is it really gives me this resiliency, and it helps. You know, it's like self care and. Because being an activist, it can be really exhausting. And you've been a community organizer for four decades. So what advice do you have for pacing and maintaining resiliency and taking care of ourselves as activists? Because it can be easy to, you know, just start out way too fast, like a sprint, and then just run out of energy. And a lot of these things we're working on, these are long-term goals. So how can we keep our fuel and, and, and keep motivated? That 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 is that it's a process, and that um, whatever I do and you do, somebody is will build on that. I think if if you go in with with that attitude that you are a cog toward an end, and you might not see the 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 full picture of what that end is, but you've moved you've moved it, and and I think that somebody will build on what is being done right now and what we're talking about right now. Somebody's going to build on this. And make it better, and make it more permanent, and make it more uh, uh, more secure in, into the future. Uh, and, and that's a given. And and I and I think that that's one of the attitudes. The other attitude is, and uh, uh, I'm I'm a persistent optimist. My wife says I'm a masochist too, which is a funny combination to have. You know, uh, that you love the pain, but uh, uh, I think. In the, in the things that we go through, and you go through as well, Carolyn, the, the, there's disillusionment, and there's bitterness, and there's cynicism, and, and there's, uh, there's uh, we can't beat them, whoever them is at the time. And, and, I, and I think you gotta, you gotta push those out um, because uh, that, that uh, I've seen too many of uh, people that I've worked with in a lifetime that that disillusionment uh, made them stop stop building the what we needed to build. Uh, very talented, very smart people, but they, they they gave up. And I think one of the key things for me is not to give up because uh, look, we're going through some some tough times for our environment. We're going some tough times through our climate, but I also see it as an opportunity. I also see what 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 uh, that 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 people's eyes are being. And, and their consciousness is being affected by what we're going through. You know, the, all of a sudden, you know, the new regs in Alaska is that you can uh, shoot any wildlife in any particular circumstance, regardless of it. And, you know, I'm, I'm, all for, I'm not against hunting, I'm against cruelty, you know? And, uh, and, and, and the multi-use of our public lands is fine with me. That's another lesson that I learned in the position that I'm in right now, that uh, the, the, the outdoors, the recreation, the recreating part of it, the experience part of it. There's different types, and 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 I you can't you can't shutter one out. You, you and the conversations I had with anglers, with hunters, who are very educational to me, uh, and some of our better conservationists are in those groups, and some of the the people that have the greatest love and care for for protecting these public lands are in those groups and so i've come to see them as allies as opposed to opponents and i and, I, and you know i'm i'm not going to go i don't see the safari club as an ally but i do see 
some of these organ ducks unlimited. I could go on that we've had conversations about why it's so important for them to protect these lands. And they see the threats the same way we see them because it's going to rob them of the experience that you, that you, you and I might have that are different. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love, I love what you said about finding those allies and the common ground. And I also really loved what you said about trying to block out that negativity because I have to tell you, when I left the House Natural Resources Committee, I was so discouraged. I was like almost in tears. I think I did cry a little bit afterward just because I felt there was just bullying and there's this negativity, but I feel a lot better about it now that the months have passed. And it's cool to see with this Protect Our Winners Action Fund Lobby Week that one of our big asks will be to support your bill, the American Public Lands and Waters Climate Solutions Act. Yeah, we, we, we need more sponsors. We have about 25 and uh, many from the committee. And uh, we have uh, our staff is more than able to help you with uh, information, talking points, et cetera. Please utilize them. And uh, uh, I, 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 one of the questions is, have you, is this bipartisan? Have you worked with the, the, uh, the minority in, in, on your committee? And the answer is, I can't wait for them. You know, I, 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 I tease them and say, you've gone from complete climate denial to climate discussion avoidance, you know, which could be one and the same. And, and, and so if you wait, and so we're, we're, we moved ahead. We had to get this done. Uh, and, and the overtures for them to be involved uh, were there, but uh, their lack of involvement is no reason to push, to not push the, the, the bill forward. I think, I think when people realize that, 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 uh, the polling for protecting our public lands and doing something with, with uh, about climate change has no political demographic. It's not Democrats, it's not Republicans, it's not independents, it's people, American people, taxpayers, their shared uh, responsibility and their shared ownership of our public lands that uh, they'll, be, they'll begin to realize that it is uh, in their best interest Mm -hmm. to, to at least be open to the discussions that we need to have about these issues. We're going to keep pushing them. I have two more quick questions. One of the other bills I'm excited to see movement on is the Great American Outdoors Act, which fully funds the Land and Water Conservation Fund. And we really want to see the next big public lands achievement in Congress directly address climate. Yeah, I think I, I, we, have, we have a really good opportunity. You know, the, the, the stars align themselves in, in our favor. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, and I can say this with, with this bloodness, you know, the political expediency to some extent, fine. I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with Republican colleagues in the Senate, uh, wanting to do, uh, deal with the backlog in our public lands, which is essential. Uh, and after you starve these agencies for all these years, of course, there is maintenance backlog, of course. And so, and, and the Land and Water Conservation Fund to make it permanent and to have a ceiling and a floor as to how much should go into that fund uh, on a yearly basis, I, I think is progress. And eventually we're going to have to look at land and water conservation as a, as a, as a budget responsibility of Congress, not just of royalties and fees, because as we transition that fund ideally would become less. 
And so there has, there's going to have to be a commitment on the part of Congress in the long haul. That's the next fight. But I, right now, to get it permanent, to get the funding, we have uh, filed already, um, members of the committee have filed already a, compliment, uh, a companion bill to the Senate bill. And uh, then we'll move uh, as soon as the Senate's done, even before uh, we'll be ready to move as well. And, uh, uh, you know, if uh, I, I, I anticipate that the president would sign something like this uh, and uh, we could take this win and feel very good about it because it's been, as you well know, it's been years of getting it to this point. And what got us here? Public, the public. That that push by the public to take care of their deteriorating parks and, and waters and protect, uh, begin to restore wetlands, begin to restore those areas that have been uh, lost and Land and Water Conservation Fund that every county and almost every state and almost every city benefits from that fund. Absolutely. How else can we follow your work and support your leadership? I, I, uh, uh, and you've done plenty, and and I appreciate that, and I and I would be remiss in not thanking uh, you and 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 the people that are uh, following your podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I think ahead of us is this: we have we have a moment coming up. We have a, a trans a, a consequential election. We say that about every election. This is the most important election in the world here in the country. This is. <laughs> and, and, and I think uh, I think we need a Department of Interior and an EPA. The one PPA that looks at people's public health and puts that as a priority, number one. Number two, uh, uh, a land department that doesn't feel like they are that, uh, and, and uh, an interior department that doesn't carry the agenda of big ass and, and big oil in everything they do. And we have a vision for where we want to go, but we have to, you know, I think the next thing that we're going to need help on is making sure that a new administration, a new Secretary of Interior realizes that as we move forward with a vision about our lands and climate change and act, be active in, in the protection of, of, of species and land and water, that we're also, that we're also, uh, that we're also cognizant of the repair work we have to do right now. Beginning with BLM, beginning with those agencies that uh, that have cut out entirely to that, to putting science back in the driver's seat of, of decision making for interior. So there's repair work to be rebuilding that that agency to where it is a multi-use agency with a philosophy, the values that we all support. Uh, and I think that's the next slide. Uh, and in terms of mining, we have a mining bill that I think is, uh, gets us, uh, finally brings us into this century and uh, with royalties attached, you know, mining pays no royalties. It can take out all the silver in the world and ship it overseas and not pay one penny to the American taxpayer. Reclamation, cleanup, security, liability issues for mining companies. Most of them are being are foreign-owned. Uh, that's going to be a big piece of legislation that we're going to want to push in this period of time and in the period of time coming. And the other thing is that, that I think the pandemic 
and the tragedy, the, the, the cumulative effect that happened with the death of George Floyd and, and that, that has uh, convulsed this nation and justifiably so. Uh, I think that that's opened up portals that weren't there before. And, and, and I think we need to be engaged in how we, how, we, how we heal those things. We need to heal the damage that we've done to our environment and we need to heal the damage that we've done to ourselves. And, and so those are gonna be initiatives and we're all gonna need help. And you know we have our EJ bill that we need help on, but we also, I think, have a uh, intersexual conversation that, that I wanna be a part of, I know you wanna be a part of, and I think that needs to be promoted because I think that ground is fertile for some, some real, real, uh, real action and real accomplishments. Great advice. Thank you so much for your time. I will include more information in the show notes. And if there's anything else I can do to help get petitions or whatever I can do, I'm here. So have your staff email me and I am so supportive of all your work. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you as always. And don't trust us. We'll bug you. Okay. Yes, please do. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time and all your leadership. Oh, thank you. Okay. We'll be in touch. Have a great rest of your day. Be safe. You too. Today's episode brought to you by Fat Tire. Born on a bike, Fat Tire strives to be a role model for other businesses in their impact on the communities they serve and the planet itself. Fat Tire is a certified B Corp and gives 1% of profits to environmental causes. They were key partners for my 2019 Everest Climb for Equality. They support nonprofits, including Protect Our Winners and the High Fives Foundation, and they continue to use business to make the world a better place. Learn more by following them on Instagram at BatTire. I am resilient. I trust the movement. I negate the chaos. Uplift the negative. I'll show up at the table again and again and again I'll close my mouth and learn to listen Special thanks goes to Avery Sandak for all the time he spent editing the audio on today's episode to Rising Appalachia for generously providing the music for the opening and closing tracks and to my partner, Rob Lee for being extra quiet in the house where I'm recording If you learned something from today's episode, share it with a friend. Until next time.